lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Now it seems like Jesus has, has diverged from his original statements regarding you know, the childlike faith and so forth, but he actually hasn't. It's a sidebar, but he's, gonna, he's masterfully going to use this error of John and the rest of the disciples to teach a lesson that's twofold. First of all, it's about intentional ministry and individual holiness. Intentional ministry and individual holiness. And he does so using the frequent use of the word offend. Offend. That is a word that is quite often misused today. Well, I'm offended. Um, I, I found that, and I don't mean to minimize when people are hurt, but I found that in 16 years of pastoring, sometimes when somebody comes and says, Pastor, I've been hurt, what they really mean is I'm mad. But hurt sounds better, doesn't it? Pastor, I've been hurt. But really, they're, they're ill about something. They're mad, you know. Now, do people sometimes get hurt? Yes, it does happen. And we need to be careful about how we deal with that and make sure we provide the healing that we can. But, but sometimes, sometimes people, they say they've been offended, but that's not, not really biblically what's happened. Because the word offend means that somebody else has caused you to stumble. Hence the, the term, minding our footing. Somebody has caused somebody to stumble. What would you think of me, and let's just, let's just choose any of our wonderful saints in this church. Let's just pick one at random, okay? Um, let, let, let's pick Mrs. Ware here. Everybody here loves Ms. Ware. Everybody here thinks she's the sweetest person in the world, including me. And so that's why I'm picking her, because you'll be especially bothered by this. Mrs. Ware is walking, smile on her face, as is always the case, and she's walking, and I'm kind of just standing over here minding my own business. And you see her walking, and I just reach out and I trip her. Y'all going to have a problem with that? You should. You should, because what I have done by biblical term is I've offended her. I have caused her to stumble. And what Jesus is talking about is when, when you've got somebody who needs to be left alone and help to grow and help to, you know, and somebody else comes along and trips them up in their spiritual walk with Christ. And Jesus takes a very dim view of that. So we need to mind our footing. The word offend means to cause, to stumble, to cause, to stumble. And he uses direct and at times, let's be honest, severe language to encourage his followers to mind our footing and to help mind the footing of others as well. So let's, let's start with the footing of others because that's where he starts, the footing of others. Okay, we want to mind their footing and help them. Verse number 42. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it's better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Now, we go to this verse a lot to talk about Jesus and how he feels about children. Who are little ones? Well, some do take this to mean children, and they, they look back to verse 36. He had a child in his midst, and they're still, presumably that child is still in his place and, and so forth. 
And this is certainly a valid application because if you look at the overall teaching of the Bible about how God and Jesus specifically feels about children, it would be reasonable to conclude that Jesus would take a dim view of, of causing a child to stumble. That, that's, that's congruent with the teaching of Scripture, isn't it? Do you think God would be okay with mistreating a child? Certainly not. He's not. Do I go down the road? Sure. If he's not okay with mistreating a child, he's not okay with murdering 63 million of them either. Preacher, is that your hobby horse? It is. It is. Because I think it invites God's judgment. Okay? But I don't think that this is the direct interpretation. This is not Christ's intention here. It's a valid application, but I don't think it's an interpretation. So who are little ones? I think he's talking about other Christians. I think he's talking about other Christians, particularly those that are newly saved or have not had the opportunity to grow in their faith. Now, why do I think that? Because Warren Wiersbe told me to. No, that's not why I think that. First of all, hold, hold your place here. Go to Matthew chapter 18. Let's look at Matthew's, Matthew's recounting of this. Matthew 18, verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, watch this, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So who is he addressing, children or adults? He's talking to adults here, isn't he? Okay. Except ye be converted. Verse 4. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And who shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me. See, Matthew 18 leads me to believe he's not talking about children. He's talking about believers, particularly new believers. Okay. Those that believe in me indicates genuine believers. It's possibly a different group, but I think it's talking about genuine believers. And, and this ties into last week. This, guy's, this guy doesn't follow us, Jesus. He's out Casting out demons, he doesn't follow us, so we forbade him because he doesn't follow us. And we pointed out that here's John's mistake here. It doesn't matter if he follows you or not, John, us. Does he follow Christ? I can't wait to get out of this section. I just can't wait. Because I know there's got to be somebody that's nervous about me. Oh, preacher's about to take us into a new denomination. No, I'm not. But beloved... If we're going to fight this battle effectively for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have got to stop straining at gnats and swallowing camels. We just got to. It's, it's, so, it's so crazy. If we could just live by the proper definition of our terms, being independent means we're not beholden to anybody. Right? And yet, Independent Baptists are some of the least independent people I've ever known. 
We all got to fall right in line with whatever our independent Baptist leaders say. No. That's part of the wonder of being independent. Do you know who an independent Baptist answers to? We answer to the Lord, and we answer to one another. That's it. I like that arrangement, don't you? But what we've done is we've gotten so independent that we've become isolated. And we, we, not only, we not only won't have anything to do with other people, we out and out condemn other people that are actually doing good things because they don't follow us. Mm. Even so, Lord, deliver me from this passage. So what we see here is we are held to a sobering standard regarding, watch this, how we treat other believers. Jesus is setting the stage for a sobering standard about how we treat other Christians. Now, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you would agree with me in this statement. I've been treated worse by other Christians than I have by people in the world. Mm. Now, that's not true across the board, but can I tell you? I've never had people in the world tell me that I'm no different than a child molester because I was a single pastor. But I had people in a church tell me that. Hmm? I've never had somebody in the world doubt whether or not I was truly a Christian because I didn't line up jot and tittle with what preacher Dr. Bottlestopper over here thought. But it's happened in church. See? But you know what we call it? We call it being sanctified. I call it carnal. That's right, preacher. That's good. Amen. (laughs) All right, so we're talking about how we deal with other Christians, and we're told not to offend them, not to cause them to stumble. What does it mean? What, in what ways could we be causing other Christians to stumble? Well, my buddy John MacArthur, you know how tight we are. And this is another example. I don't agree with Dr. MacArthur on a good many things. But when he's right, he's right. You know? You, you've heard the whole thing about eating the meat and spitting out the bones. And he gives, he gives four ways... I want to give him credit for this. This is his work, not mine. He gives four ways that we can cause others to stumble. And I can't improve upon it, so why don't I just give it to you? Number one, by direct temptation, when we entice other people to do wrong. Well, Christians don't do that, do they? Mm. How about this? Hey, man, listen. Let's blow off church tonight and go see a movie. I'm not telling you that I'm mad at you for going to see a movie. But I'll tell you, if you blew God's house off to go see a movie, that's wrong. Amen, preacher, that's good. I'm just going to amen myself. Y'all don't have to. (laughs) 
direct temptation. What would Solomon tell Rehoboam? My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Resist that. But usually with Christians, that's not what, what usually happens. We get into indirect temptation. Indirect temptation. And that's when we create conditions or allow for conditions that make it easy to sin. We have some rules in our home. For modesty's sake and for privacy's sake, our children are allowed to have their bedroom doors closed. They are not allowed to lock them. Why? Because a locked door makes it easy to sin. Do you know where our computer is in our home? Out in the open. Why? Because I don't need it to be any easier for me to sin. My wife and I have accountability measures in our lives. And I'll be candid with you, they're more for me than for her because men tend to have these issues more than women. You stay out of trouble when you plan to stay out of trouble. See? Um, we have rules in this school, and some of them, the kids are like, Why? That's dumb. Sometimes they say it in their heart. Sometimes they say it out loud. And right now, we have been, uh, the school board has been going through the handbook with a fine-tooth comb to see if there's anything that doesn't need to be there or needs to be reworded. And all the students are optimistic that life's going to get better. Don't be. <laughs> because we have gotten rid of some dumb rules and we've replaced them with new dumb rules. But you know what those rules really are meant to do? And sometimes we find they're not as successful and useful as we'd like for them to be. But do you know, rules, we don't just look for ways to put together new rules. It's, it's not about that because that's more stuff to keep up with. But we don't want to make it easy for kids to do wrong. We got a rule that has been here forever. You're not allowed to use earbuds or AirPods or headphones or anything like that at school functions. Why? I don't assume that a kid is listening to wrong music, but when you have those kind of setups, they can without me knowing it. So I don't make it easy to do wrong. Well, once you graduate, listen to whatever God will let you listen to. But here, I don't want to make it easy. We don't want kids off to alone together. Why? Because kids are just like their parents. And if you're made of this stuff and you make provision for the flesh, you get put in a bad situation enough times, you will do wrong. And we cause people to stumble when we make it easy for them to do wrong. You know who's the worst offenders of this? Parents. That's why God wrote a verse about it. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. What's God saying? He's saying don't create conditions that make it easy for them to do wrong. 
I don't spend enough time with my kids. I don't spend enough time mentoring my kids. I don't show the love that I should for my kids. I am creating conditions that makes it easier for them to rebel. Right? And that's when I'm a stumbling block. Now, I'm not saying that this is true in this room, but can I tell you, there are scores and scores of thousands of kids that God could have used mightily, but mom and dad got in the way. God, deliver me from this passage. Direct temptation, indirect temptation. Thirdly, a poor example. When we portray a testimony that lends itself to wrong behavior. When kids see us not taking seriously the things of God, what is their natural response? Well, why should I? Fourthly, a failure to stimulate good works. To not create an atmosphere that encourages doing right. Is that biblical? You better believe it. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. At Granite Christian Academy... See, here's what happens in a lot of ministries. We spend all of our time trying to make sure that these kids aren't doing wrong. But we spend very little time and effort trying to show them ways that they can do right. And we want to create a situation in which, yeah, they are protected from easily getting into the wrong things. But listen, I want to encourage you. Let's go out and do some things that please God. It's wonderful to serve God. Let's provoke one another to love and the good works. And when we don't, we're a stumbling block. As a parent, I can so easily spend all my time dealing with it when my kids come up short, but I don't spend hardly any time showing them how wonderful it is to proactively serve God in their lives. We're talking about the footing of others. What's the synopsis of these verses? By the way, there is another application to be made, and that is those that would stand in the way of somebody coming to Christ in the first place. And it is that person that if they stand in the way of of keeping somebody from coming to Christ in the first place... You better believe it's better for them to have a millstone hanged about their neck and to be cast into the sea because God takes a very dim view of that. Jesus uses strong language to warn against anyone who would cause a new believer to stumble in his walk with Christ. And for an unsaved stumbling block, this warning is particularly severe. That's one verse. So uh, settle in. Not really. The footing of others, but now Jesus is warning about maintaining the footing of ourselves. The footing of ourselves. We pick up in verse number 43. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. There's better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell into the fire which that shall never be quenched. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That's a reference to Isaiah 66, 34, by the way. And it's used three times here. 
Some have said that because this doesn't appear in the oldest manuscripts that maybe it's better just to leave verse 44 alone and leave out verse 46 and verse 48. I disagree with that. I think Jesus did say it three times because he often repeated himself over and over again. Show me one person that hasn't had to repeat things to their kids. If thy foot offend thee, cut it off. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. Now, Preacher, we believe in a literal interpretation of the Word of God, don't we? We do indeed. But one of the basic tools of what's called hermeneutics is you believe in a literal interpretation unless the Bible gives you within itself a reason to think figuratively. And if you look at the Bible as a whole, you know that God does not want us maiming ourselves. So because the whole of Scripture teaches us that God does not want us to maim ourselves because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we're to take care of what God has given us, then he must mean something else. And he did. Now, I'm sorry to say that there have been occasions throughout church history in which people have taken that literally and they have maimed themselves in different ways seeking to gain victory over sin. And you know what they found? They had the same issue with the sin and now they're maimed. Why is that? Because remember, where does sin come from? We're comparing Scripture with Scripture, right? Where does sin come from? Go back to chapter 7 and verse number 20. Hold your place here. Go back to 7 and verse number 20. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within... Out of the what? Heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, and so forth. So if my hand offends me, my hand isn't the problem, is it? It's my heart. And you can't very well pluck out your heart, can you? I mean, you can, and it'll be the last thing you do. But that's where the sin originates. Well, I'm going to deny my flesh. And don't get me wrong, we are to deny the flesh, but I'm going to deny my flesh in a, in a severe way that I might not have a problem with sin. Can I tell you something? You ask any monk that's ever lived in a monastery, they'll tell you it doesn't work. I'm going to beat myself up. I'm going to, I'm going to hit myself with a whip. I'm going to, I'm going to dismember myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to maim myself. And the sin problem is still there because the heart problem is still there. One could eliminate all of these parts, an eye, a hand, a foot, and still struggle with these sins. I know this to be true. I once counseled a man years ago, years ago. Y'all wouldn't have any connection to him, so, you know, don't look around and, hmm, you know. He had a problem with looking at things he shouldn't look at, which, by the way, is an epidemic problem amongst men especially, but also ladies. He was 80. Long past the time of his life that he would be worried about having a family and things like that, and it still dogged him. He was 80. 
What does that tell us? If it's here, it doesn't matter what's going on in the body. If it's here, it's still a problem, right? Again, Jesus is using severe language to drive home the seriousness of not maintaining personal holiness. He talks about the hand. Well, obviously the hand speaks to what we do. If there's something that I am doing in my life that is causing me to stumble, that is causing me to be offensive to God, it has to go. Are there pastimes that I need to mortify? Are there things that I do that have to go? Well, you know, I mean, I could tail back on it. Yeah? Well, life, and the Bible in particular would tell you, that if it's wrong, you can't ease up on it. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to kill it. Right? If you had a home that, if you woke up, this happened to us. I'm laying in my bed. And something descends from the ceiling gracefully and lands on the bed. It's a spider. But not just any spider, friend. A black widow. It was seven weeks before Crystal moved back into our bedroom. Now, thankfully, upon investigating it, it was a single, a single event. One unfortunate spider had wandered somewhere that she should not have and paid a dear price. Dear price. But what if we'd have had somebody come in and they said, well, i got bad news for you. You're infested with them. They're everywhere then our house would be burned to the foundation. Mr. Davis, you're infested. What do you want me to do? Kill half of them. What? Yeah, that's good. There's fewer of them. You understand they're poisonous, right? Yeah, half of them be good. I recommend, okay, fine, two-thirds. That's silly, isn't it? But what do we do with sin in our lives? If I can just tail back, if I can deal with less sin, no, one sin will kill you. It has to be destroyed. And if we're infested with spiders, I'm sorry, they got to be destroyed. But they do so much for the, well, they can do it out there, not in my house. Don't come at me with that environmental stuff. They can do what God made them for out there. That said, I'm trying to get my wife to agree to let me turn a black snake loose under the house. Why? Because they kill mice and they keep away bad snakes. To which you say, aren't they all bad snakes? No. I'd be okay with that. But spiders, not so much. It's all got to go. And all sin has to go. 
And yet what we try to do is we try to tail back and keep just enough to have fun with, but not enough to destroy us, not realizing that it's all destroying us. Mm. I know what you're thinking. When I lean into you like this, I'm trying to be, I'm not. It hurts to stand up straight. This is all physical. All right? So I'm not. My feet. That speaks to where we go. Call me a legalist if you want. There's some places Christians ought not go. There's some places Christians have no business being. Where, preacher? Give me a list. I'm not going to give you a list. You know the principles of God's word. You know where Christians can and cannot serve God effectively. And whatever the Holy Spirit speaks to you about, you stay away from it. You know. Oh, but here's the big one. My eye. What's my eye speak to? What I take in. And friend, if you've got a problem with watching the wrong things on TV, guess what? It may be the TV needs to go. If you've got a problem with your phone, it may be the phone needs to go. If you've got a problem with the computer, it may be, it may be the computer needs to go. But what do we tend to do? We tend to say, well, I'll just, I'll just, you know, I'll just try to tail back. No, if we're bringing things into our lives that are not helping us as Christians, then we owe it to ourselves and our Savior to cut out what keeps us from being more like Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify, mortify means kill, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Colossians 3, verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Romans 13, verse 4, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. So if you struggle with alcohol, then you shouldn't have cooking sherry. I didn't realize so many people like cooking sherry in here. <laughs> he says to watch for our own footing. Now, let me, let me take just some time to talk about something that Jesus references three times here. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. And when we read these verses, it is very clear that Jesus is not speaking, um, he's not speaking philosophically or figuratively. Jesus believed in a literal place called hell. And that this place was not just the absence of God, although frankly, that's the worst part of it. It was a place of torment, a place of fire. And he uses an interesting term to describe hell. Three times he talks about where the fire is not quenched, where the worm dieth not. The word that is used for hell is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna would have a specific meaning for these people that he's speaking to. Gehenna would take their minds to the valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom, I can't think of a more concentratedly evil place in all the world than the Valley of Hinnom. When you go back to 2 Chronicles um, chapters 28 and 33, you see two kings. Now, these are not the wicked kings of the northern kingdom, Israel. All of the kings of Israel were bad. 
But in Judah, the southern kingdom, you had a mixture, good and bad. You had two kings in the southern kingdom of Judah that were exceedingly wicked. One's name was Ahaz, and one's name was Manasseh. And what makes them exceedingly wicked is they both worshipped a false god named Molech. And I'm not going to be gratuitous here, particularly in view of what's been going on the last couple of weeks. But the god Molech was made of metal. And he had his arms out like this. And his belly was open. And they would start a fire in his belly, and they would make that metal red hot. And another name for that region was called Topheth. And the word Topheth literally means drums. And here's what they would do. They would get that thing red hot, and they would beat the drums as loud as they could. And it would just go and go and go and go and go because it would tr- they were trying to mask the screams of their babies as they laid those children in the arms of that false god. Ahaz did it. Manasseh did it. Others in the northern kingdom did it. But this was the southern kingdom. And this was where this stuff took place. And thank God Josiah came in and cut all this stuff out. Hezekiah came in and cut all this stuff out. And you know what eventually the Valley of Hinnom became? It got rid of Molech. Thank God. Got rid of Molech. And they turned it into the only thing suitable for a place like that. They turned it into a garbage heap. And everybody from Jerusalem would bring their garbage, dead animals, whatever and throw it into the valley of Hinnom. And there was a perpetual burning going on. I'm not trying to be gross, but as you had the decay of these animals, you know what you had? Worms. And as they burnt this trash, what did you have? Fire. And Jesus' use of the, the word Gehenna, here's what he's telling them. Hell is a place of fire. It is a place of decomposition. It is a place that has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. It is everything that you can imagine that's bad about creation. That's hell. Not for nothing. There's some people that believe that the potter's field that was purchased by the Jewish leaders after Judas returned his blood money was located in the valley of Hinnom. Why would Jesus include that in this discussion about not losing our footing? Because if we don't maintain our footing, we can trip people right into hell. And hell's a real place. And if somebody's not saved, and what they do, what they see, and where they go is keeping them from getting saved, it is better for you to lose an eye, a hand, a foot, than to go into hell. 
Jesus uses this as an opportunity to remind people of the reality of hell and how awful it is. And if that does nothing else for us tonight, it should do this. It should remind us of how badly we need to get the gospel to as many people as we can because hell's real and it's real awful. I'm out of time. But you've got to get verses 49 and 50. Can I give you an abbreviated version of verses 49 and 50? For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith, with, with, wherewith, y'all try saying it, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. There's all kinds of things that could be going on in these two verses, particularly verse number 49. It could be a reference to the judgment seat of Christ, but I think there's more going on here. I think verse 49 speaks likely of suffering. It is a reference to Leviticus chapter 2, verses 11 and 13. They would add salt to sacrifices, particularly, particularly the grain sacrifices, the grain offerings. Verse 50 likely speaks to service. What, what do we do as Christians? Salt preserves and salt seasons, and that's what we're meant to do in life. We're told to be salt and light. If you put them together, I think what Jesus is saying is our lives are, prepared, are to be prepared to suffer and to serve. To suffer and to serve. That's part of living for God. Romans 12.1 backs this up. I beseech you there, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. But then if we want to sum it all up, and Jesus does that for us here, if we want to sum it all up, everything he's been talking about in this section, you're disputing among yourselves. What, what are you disputing about? Who should be the greatest? Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. We forbade him. Jesus sums it all up here in the last part of verse number 50. You ready? Five words. Have peace one with another. Have peace one with another. The preacher. That preacher down the road's an enemy. No, he's not. Boy, I'm really going to get in trouble now. Joe Biden's not our enemy. Oh, he's trying to look like it, but he's not. Nancy Pelosi's not our enemy. Senator Schumer's not our enemy. Those liberals on the Supreme Court aren't our enemy. As my Bible tells me, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. Our enemy is the devil. Our enemy is the world, the system, the philosophy, and the enemy that I most often contend with, my flesh. That's where the battle is. Can I tell you something, Christians? If we'd get the victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil, Nancy Pelosi would be no match for us. It's true. You get a bunch of Christians that have revival and are sold out serving God, you can't stop that. But we're not, are we? So, this preacher over here isn't my 
enemy and that college over there isn't my enemy I may not agree with them I may not I may not even fellowship with them in a corporate way but I tell you what I can be at peace with one another from the looks I'm getting I feel like everybody wants to go out on a fight well we're not we're going to fight the enemy that we should fight and we're going to go in the battles that we can win that God's with us on you know and that's what Jesus is trying to get through his thick-headed disciples. Because now, he's going to an even more difficult subject. So, so difficult, I'm putting it off for two weeks. What's next? Chapter 10. Divorce. This is what expositional preaching does. It forces us places we don't want to go. But Christian, we're never going to get more like Jesus if we don't go places we don't want to go. Here's all I'm asking you to do as we move through, as we move through these chapters. Just just ask this question. What does God's word say? That's all we want. I just want to live according to what God's word says. And what I see in chapter 9 is that God's word says, yes, stand for what's right. Yes, maintain separation. We can't get away from that as being scriptural, but I don't have to be isolated from everybody. There's other people out there that love the Lord, and I'm to be kind to them, and I'm not to be a stumbling block to other people. And you better believe that there's a reference to that fellow that they said to quit, quit casting out demons. I think Jesus knew they hurt his feelings. And maybe that's what this whole thing was about. You were a stumbling block to him. There's, there's, there's enough stuff out there to trip up a Christian. Let's don't let it be us, okay? Can we agree on that? I hope so.